This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Navigating the Christian life in a secular world will inevitably stir questions in the lives of thoughtful believers. In Ask Pastor John, Tony Ranke summarizes and organizes 10 years of the most insightful and popular episodes of the Ask Pastor John podcast, allowing readers to quickly and systematically access Piper's insights on hundreds of topics, including Bible reading, dating, social media, mental health, and more. Pick up a copy of Ask Pastor John wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. You're listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Today, you'll hear a breakout session led by Jackie Hill Perry called Gay Girl, Good God, the story of who I was and who God has always been. This workshop was originally held at the Gospel Coalition's 2019 National Conference in Indianapolis. God, um, I just want to take this time uh, seriously, saying that um, you're real and you're present and you're big and you're holy and you care a lot about your glory. And so I pray that you would help me to care too, um, that I would be humble before you um, to really make this way more about you than it is about me. I pray uh, that this time would be edifying, that this time would be challenging and that it would bear much fruit. Um, I pray that questions would be answered, that discouragement would uh, leave. I pray that there would be comfort even. I pray that it would make our churches stronger and our evangelism urgent. Um, for all these things, in Jesus' name, amen. Man, it's a lot of people. So my name's Jackie. Um, I am married to a man named Preston who has a last name Perry, so that made my name Jackie Hill Perry. Uh, he's here right now, shout out to Preston. He doesn't like that I did that. Um, <laughs> we have two daughters by the name of Autumn and Eden. Eden is four years old. Autumn is 10 months. Uh, Autumn just started to sleep through the night. And so God really is a good God. <laughs> you know, he really does shine on us uh, in that way. And we live in Atlanta, Georgia. We go to a church called Cornerstone. And so that's a brief testament of my life. I'm only stalling so that people can sit down and y'all wouldn't be distracted. Um, who has gay girl, good God that, that was okay. It's not enough hands. <laughs> so downstairs, they are $8 and 50 cents. That's cheaper than Amazon. You hear me? Even if you got Amazon prime, you can't beat that. It's so, 
But that gives me some context. Um, so I wrote this book called Gay Girl, Good God, the story of who I was and who God has always been. It was released in um, September. And the primary heart of the book was it, was, it was three audiences that I wanted to communicate to. I wanted to communicate to the church uh, to help them love the gay community well. I wanted to communicate to those inside of the church who are same-sex attracted. I wanted the book to be a means by which God would help them endure. Um, but I also wanted to speak to the world, those who are same-sex attracted or not. And I wanted them to see God because I think ultimately this conversation is not, it shouldn't just be centered around sexuality. I think it should be centered around glory. Um, and I think when it's centered and anchored on the glory of God, then all of his commands actually make a lot more sense. Uh, and so that was my heart. And so today, my goal is really to tell my story and to use elements of my story to tell the bigger story, um, to point to Jesus. And hopefully that there uh, will be things in it that you can take hold of, grab uh, and apply in your own lives, your own evangelism, your own encouragement, et cetera. OK, uh, before my story starts, there is another story that has to be communicated, uh, which is Genesis. Uh, in Genesis, we all know that in the beginning, it was God who created the heavens and the earth. Um, him being God means he is all authoritative. Him being God means that he is eternal. Him being God also means that he's good. And he creates these people, Adam and Eve. He makes them in his image. Them being image bearers of the living God is a signpost of who they are to serve, who they are to belong to. And so initially... They did their job. <laughs> they gave God glory. They loved him well. They loved each other well. For how long? We don't know. Could have been a million years. It wasn't no time. So who knows? But they loved him until the serpent came. When the serpent came, Eve began to have a conversation with a snake. She should have known something was up when the snake started talking. But I'm not here to judge nobody. Uh, <laughs> she started to have a conversation with the devil. And in her conversation with the devil, she started to look at this tree that God forbid them not to eat from. Um, the interesting thing is that as she began to look at the tree, she started to have a desire for the tree. In Genesis 3, it says that Eve looked at the tree and it was desired to make one wise. That's an affection. That's a passion. That's a, that's a real present emotion that she's feeling as to why she should potentially sin against God. Um, in choosing to believe another person besides God, she sins against God, hands the fruit to her husband who was doing, I don't know what, maybe cutting the grass. Who knows? I don't know if they had grass in Eden. I would suspect that they did. Um, but maybe, you know, because he was perfect, he was plucking grass and he had perfect patience. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> she hands it to her husband who was with her. He ate him being Adam, the patriarch of all of mankind. All of sin enters into everyone who would come after them, including me. And so now I come inside of this lineage of people who are ruled by passions. This lineage of people who, when they look at something that God has told them not to handle or not to eat from, they don't think he's right in his estimation of what will happen if they disobey. Um, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, um, to a single mother. Uh, she loved me well. My daddy loved me sometimes. Uh, I think my daddy loving me occasionally uh, kind of gave me an a early skepticism towards men. 
a skepticism that meant or to me said that they are not to be trusted, that they are not to be believed. Um, as well as I wasn't only just fatherless, but I also was molested. And so not only am I abandoned and rejected by my dad, but I'm also objectified by another male figure. Now, I think many people might think that is the reason behind same-sex attraction. I don't think molestation and fatherlessness caused the same-sex attraction to exist. I think, if anything, it gave me reason for why I should pursue it. I think it existed before that because I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. But if anything, it affirmed that this is really what I should do because all of the evidence of doing the opposite doesn't seem that safe. Um, I grew up feeling or discovering that I had this desire that I didn't know what to do with. I think I was in first or second grade in the book I mentioned. I just know it was before I knew how to spell my name. You don't hear them? They, it sound like uh, the wedding reception behind the scenes that everybody. Um, <laughs> before I knew how to spell my name, I noticed that I had a desire for uh, girls on the playground. The same way in which, you know, little girls might like the little boys. I like the little girls. Uh, I didn't have a name for it at that time. This is early 90s. And so it wasn't as if I could watch TV or listen to the radio or read a book or listen to a podcast and grab a, a definition to define myself by and make it a part of my identity. And so I didn't figure out what it was that I was feeling until I went to church. When I went to church, it was when I heard Leviticus 18. And I heard Romans one and my issue really wasn't even with the condemnation that they made for uh, those who practice homosexuality. It was the way it was said. It was the inflections. It was the facial expressions. It was the mob mentality of the choir and of the parishioners in the church that told me, oh, this is obviously something I cannot be free in sharing because um, to be free means to feel that that disdain that othering that they are doing um, in the name of God. And so I kept it to myself for a long time. Um, friendships were awkward <laughs> because I would be in relationships with women and feel a particular type of way and didn't necessarily know what to do with it. Um, I'm in high school by this point. Now, high school came, I feel like everybody either wilds out and wilds out, how do I, how do I make that? Everyone acts rebellious at some point. Uh, <laughs> contextualization, you know. Um, everybody acts crazy uh, either at three intervals, middle school, high school, college. I chose high school. So high school came and I thought to myself, you know what? It's really becoming difficult to act straight. Like it, it, it's, it's becoming harder to try to act like something that I don't really think that I am. And I think the devil kind of knew that that was what was happening inside of me. And so I was at a high school dance. This is senior year. I'm 17. And a friend of mine, she uh, walks up to me and she said, she didn't say hi. She was like the devil. You know, the devil ain't even say hi to Eve. He just went straight to asking her questions because <laughs> he's demonic. He's rude. You know, uh, it's angels that are polite, you know, anyway, <laughs> uh, she comes up to me and she said, hey, Jackie, when you go or you should be my girlfriend. I said, wait, that's real gay because I had to act real straight. I said, that's gay. You know, you, you got to chill out with that. But she didn't know that her question actually gave me now cause for who I could act out these passions with um, because I wasn't going to pursue it myself. And so at that time, MySpace was a thing. I don't know if we remember that. It existed before Twitter and, and, and Facebook. There was a guy named Tom that was all in our top 10. Um, <laughs> 
I got on MySpace and I hit her up and we got into a relationship that lasted maybe seven days. Because whether gay or straight, when you're 17, you're fickle. And so <laughs> I got in a relationship with her. After that, uh, deceased, we, I, got into, I got back on MySpace and I got into another relationship with another girl. In that relationship is when I transitioned into what in the black, lesbian, or gay community is called a stud. So gay community in white worlds and black worlds have different terms because they're different cultures, right? And so a stud in the black lesbian community is the woman who projects a kind of hyper-masculinity. This might be called butch in other places. Uh, a hyper-masculinity. So I sagged my pants, I wore boxers, I wore uh, t-shirts for the most part, I would wear uh, smaller sports bras to flatten out my chest. At that time I had straight hair, so I would put my hair in a ponytail. I walked different, my mannerisms were different, my voice is already heavy, so I didn't have to do much to change that. Um, and so that, that was me trying to, and not even trying to, it wasn't like I'm purpose saying I'm going to act like a boy. That wasn't really what I'm thinking. It's really I'm being who I believe myself to be. And I think some of the confusion I might have felt about my gender was sin, was the devil, but also the culture. Because I think the culture made me feel as if I wasn't woman enough. So when you're a girl who doesn't like pink, doesn't like lip gloss, doesn't like, uh, you know, nails and playing with all of these things and purses. Even now, I don't like purses. Half of y'all got a purse with Carmex and a charger in it. It's, it's a lot of baggage. <laughs> I don't like them. But they were telling me that's what women are. That's what, that's what women do. That's, that's the girl thing. And so naturally, I'm feeling as if, if I am not girly like that. If that is how we are defining women, then I must not be that at all. And so naturally when I started to embody masculinity, it wasn't as if I was trying to be a boy. It was, I was being what everybody had been telling me I was the whole time. And so I think that says something about maybe a lot of the confusion that we are seeing among us is because we have defined womanhood and manhood in terms that God has never communicated. That's a whole nother conversation. So I am dressing this way and enjoying myself. I enjoyed my sin. If you have sinned, if I, I, I'll say this way. I don't know anybody that's a sinner that ain't like sinning. If they did, I don't know what kind of sin they're doing. All right. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it. But even in my enjoyment of the women that I was with, even in my enjoyment in all of the other sins that I persisted in, I did not have peace. There was this weird kind of awareness that me and God were at odds. And I think that that's old to Sunday school because growing up, my mother was not a believer, but every weekend she worked. And in her working, I used to go to church with my aunt who was a believer. And at church, you know, when all the big grownups have big grown-up church, we go eat popcorn and color in uh, white Jesus. And so... I'm just saying. <laughs> and even like the like white people crayon isn't even sufficient. So it's like you might as well have just given me the brown one. It would be more, you know, demographically accurate. So <laughs> I say that because that's just a caveat of encouragement that the little small but heavy big truths that we give to our children might very well be the thing that God uses to convert them later in life. And so I think what Sunday school taught me was just the simplicity of the gospel, which is that Jesus has come to die for sinners so that they, they might live. 
That's all I needed to know. I didn't know need to know Leviticus and justification and atonement and propitiation. I didn't need all that. I just needed Jesus loves sinners, so he died for them. Um, in this time, I have this conviction that I don't know what to do with. Um, it's kind of irritating when you want to sin freely and you're aware that you shouldn't. <laughs> I don't know if y'all felt that. Like if you if you grow up in church, it's like, dang, I just want to like not have a conscience for once. Um and so what happened was I had a conversation with my cousin, Keisha. Keisha was the one Christian that I could call that would actually talk to me. And what I mean by talk to me is I could call her and she wouldn't immediately go to, you know, you're going to hell, right? <laughs> she didn't feel this pressure to have a evangelistic conversation with me every time we talked. To me, it felt like she loved me like Jackie the image bearer and not just Jackie the gay girl. She loved me in a way where I knew she wasn't trying to fix me. She was just trying to love me. And that's not to say that we don't have specific conversations, but it is to say that how we love people has to be a holistic kind of love. Um, because I think if someone comes to you expecting the law every time, they're going to stop coming at some point. And so I called her and I said, you know what, I feel like I feel like God is calling me. I really do feel that way. I feel like God wants me, but I don't want him. I, I really, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying myself. I'm enjoying my life. I ain't got no peace. Uh, my, you know, that's whack. You know, I'm scared to die. But <laughs> other than that, I'm enjoying myself. And she told me, she said, you know what, Jackie? I'm not worried about you because I know that God is going to show you how much you need him. I'm a sinner. That didn't make no sense to me. I'm like, okay, amen. Um, <laughs> I echo that. And uh, <laughs> that was way more funnier to me than it was to y'all. Um, she was right, though, because what began to happen is that my life got a little difficult. Um, I got arrested. Uh, and went to jail for like two hours. Um, my father passed away in a motorcycle accident, which was which was hard because to me it meant that the the hopes that I had that our relationship might one day be normal uh, would never be uh, would never happen. Um, and I started to think, does God really want me this much? Like that He would make my life difficult. And I think that's the beauty of providence and suffering in it because I feel like God was allowing my life to become a little messy. So I had to look up. Um, he wouldn't let it be easy. He wanted me to be able to, or be forced to pay attention to him and his voice. And so I had a conversation with a friend and I was like, I don't understand why God wants me. You know, I don't understand what he wants me to do because I felt like to have God and to know God meant boring. Like, I, I, I didn't see that, one, I didn't see that Christians were people who had been made that way. I thought that Christians were people that were just really good at saying no and not listening to secular music. <laughs> I, I, I just, I had no concept of Christianity being something that was a byproduct of grace and a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. So for that reason, to choose God fe feels impossible because I know myself. I know I love my sin too much. I know I love my passions too much. But also, I didn't meet enough Christians that seemed to enjoy God either. And so it's like, why would I want your God when you don't even seem happy with him? 
I, I smile on my face when I'm high more than you do when you're in church. <laughs> Until October, October 2008, I was in my room. Um, I did not go to church because I wasn't a fan of um, Christians. I wasn't, uh, yeah, it was just always awkward. I feel like when I was around Christians, I, I mentioned this in the book, how the way they looked at me was kind of how a person looks at a bug. Not, 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 and not a roach, not that kind of bug, but like maybe a caterpillar where you look at it out of this intrigue, like, why are you this, right? <laughs> like, why are you this way? And in you being this way, you're still, you're still below me, kind of. Uh, and so I was in my room. And I wasn't doing nothing spiritual. I wasn't watching TBN. I wasn't listening to no Beth Moore tapes. Uh, <laughs> none of that. Did she even have tapes back then? I don't, I don't know what the resource was for people. But um, <laughs> I was in my room doing something real regular. And I felt God speak to my heart in such a way where the reality of my sin became a rea reality. And the, the best way to describe it is because, you know, We'd be afraid of sounding charismatic in these kinds of places, but <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. Y'all should already know that. Um, it was as if a very strong thought was in my mind that burned in my heart, and there was no other thoughts that I could think about other than the reality of my sin. And in it, I started to think about my sin and its consequences. And so I saw when I did that, I'm a liar, uh, I got issues with authority, um, I'm lustful, I'm prideful, and this is also the benefit of church is that you get you, you know what all the sins you'll go to hell for. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm reckoning with my sins and their consequences. And what it told me was, is God has beef with other things than my sexuality that there is a holistic repentance that needs to take place, which I think is necessary for us to learn and begin to communicate. Because what happens is if someone thinks that homosexuality and the practice of it is the only thing they need to repent of, then they've also concluded that everything else in their heart is good enough. And I think that might be why we don't see repentance as often, because they're trying to Please, God, by acting straight instead of seeing that your heart has always been the problem and that God is not just at odds with a piece of you, but with all of you that is expressing itself in a way that was not that your heart or your body or your life or your mind, that that wasn't the intention. So for me, I think God was showing me, no, like all of you is messed up. And if all of you is messed up, that means that all of you needs me. And if all of you needs me, then that means that God's call of you is a, a whole one, a, a complete one, which I think should bring anybody joy that God is saying, I don't want a section. I want all of it for myself. Um, that was heavy to know. I think that's a, that's a heavy burden to realize that God wants complete surrender. But I also pushed back with God. Uh, I was like, God, now this is what I said. I don't want to be straight, though. Like, I get what you're saying. <laughs> but I don't want to be straight, which is a common response because 
Christians, in the name of preaching the gospel, have preached the gospel of heterosexuality. But let me explain. So what I mean by that is they'll say it in a really well-meaning fashion. Hey, if you come to Jesus, he'll make you straight. Or if you come to Jesus, he'll give you a spouse. Or if you come to Jesus, you won't have to deal with that anymore. And so what happens is people come to Jesus for everything other than Jesus. They don't come to Jesus to know him or to be reconciled with God, but they come to Jesus with the intention of being a morally acceptable person to y'all. And so my response was the same. I don't want, I don't want that. You know, I didn't realize though that God was not calling me, not necessarily calling me to heterosexuality. And I think another way to see it is God wasn't calling me to a temptationless Christianity. But God was calling me to love him and walk with him. So even in light of whatever temptations may persist and consist, that he would give me the power to flee every time if I trusted him. Um, and so I sat and I felt like God was telling me, don't even trip off all that. I, I don't think the Lord of hosts talks that way, but I'm just trying to <laughs> don't even trip off all that. You know, <laughs> can you imagine the angel in the days? Don't even trip off all that. <laughs> That's crazy. But in my human paraphrasing, uh, God was telling me, don't trip, you know, come to me, love me. We'll work out everything else uh, as you do. And so what happened was I just saw my sin for what it was. I, I, I just saw that if God is calling me away from these things, then they must not be worth it. And if they aren't worth it, then he must be the worthy one that he must be the one who I was created to love and enjoy um, and know, which is still terrifying because it's terrifying to let go of all that you know that has been keeping you comfortable, that you think has been keeping you safe and to fling yourself on the mercies of God, not knowing what it is to be with him. You know, when you persist in unbelief so long, it's hard to actually trust that God will be there to catch you when you fall. That's a scary thing. But I had no choice but to believe it because my fleeing to Jesus wasn't me fleeing hell. It was me seeing that he was better. It was me seeing that he was the one that I needed to believe in and trust in because he had to be the good one in the entire equation. Didn't know that that was repentance. Didn't even have language for that. Didn't know me seeing Jesus for who he was was faith. Didn't have language for that. Didn't even know that after I did that and my heart was different, that that was regeneration and conversion. Didn't have language for that. All I knew was that I wasn't the same. Um, I went to work the next day. I worked at Wendy's, so I got y'all if you need a junior bacon recipe. <laughs> I can't help you with the Frosty, that's secret. You gotta ask, you gotta ask Wendy about that. But um, I went to work and I'm dressed the same, you know? I ain't changed no clothes, so I'm still sagging. Still, you know, walking around. Uh, hyper-masculine or whatever the case may be. And I'm at the cash register and there's this girl in line and she was pretty. And naturally my heart wanted to do what it used to do, which is to somehow solicit her, see, you know, if she goes that way or whatever the case may be. But all of a sudden I had this awareness of God that he was watching. But being the almost churchy kid that I was, it wasn't as if two days before I didn't know that God could see everything. I knew he could see everything. It was just for the first time in my life, I cared. I, I cared that God could see what my heart was doing. And that was the fruit of repentance. 
Some people would have told me that I might have been the same person because I still felt the same. Somebody would have told me that I might have been the same person because I'm still tempted by this woman. But the scriptures tell me that, no, you have a reverence for God now. That's, that's, a, that's a fruit of new people, of saved people, of, of different people. Um, I've tried to communicate that to those who are same-sex attracted in the church because it's a hard thing that everybody understands. Anybody that has a sin that is persistent, a desire that doesn't seem to fade, even in men who would identify as heterosexual who are married and yet still feel this desire towards somebody that doesn't belong to them. This, this thought towards a, a, a picture of a screen or on your phone and this, this desire for something that you're not supposed to touch, that you're not supposed to consume, that you're not supposed to have. All of us as, as human beings have this this life where we love God and we know God and our hearts have been changed, yet this flesh still has these things that pop up. And so I think my greatest hope has been the reality that I no longer have to go to a temple to talk to the high priest. I don't have to do that. And that would be a real expensive flight if I did. <laughs> but the fact that I was in Wendy's and that I had a high priest who in that moment was empathizing with me and interceding for me who I could talk to in that moment. And again, I'm a new baby Christian, so I ain't got no big words. I can't sing how great thou art. I don't know none of this. What I do know is help me, though. I know Father God helped me, and he did. He showed me that he would be present with me even when I am tempted. Immediately after that, I connected with a friend who uh, connected me with the church. When I went to the church, the, uh, I had asked my friend to borrow her clothes because I don't trust, I ain't trust Christians still. And so I was like, I can't go in here looking like a boy because they're going to do too much. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, hey, how you doing? So glad that you're here. You know, um, <laughs> don't act like y'all don't do that. There's the sinner. Go like be hospitable to them. Um, <laughs> you have a church home, you know, hope you feel welcome. Um, well, I put on this like Ashley voice. Do they offend white people when we do that to y'all? It don't, cause, cause I'll be offended if you try to talk like you DeAndre. I promise I would. I'll be like, I don't, you better chill. Uh, <laughs> with black Twitter, get on you. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I'm at this church and this woman named Melissa walks up to me. I've been a Christian maybe six days. And Melissa walks up to me and she said, hey, what's your name? And I said, Jackie. And she kind of nodded her head, squinted a little bit. Jackie, kind of looked up. And that was so minor to her probably. But to me, it said, she's trying to remember my name. And that felt meaningful to me that it, it, it seemed like a sincere care for just who I was, who God had made me the Jackie that God had uh, given to Linda Hill in St. Louis in 1989. That this, that's all she really saw in me. And I don't remember what the sermon was about. All I remember that it was this, it was the Old Testament. And I, I was like, this is real deep. I don't understand none of this. But what brought me back to the church wasn't anything that was happening in the church. It wasn't the programs. It wasn't the tithing. It wasn't the worship. It wasn't none of that. It was that interaction. It was seeing that, oh, there's people here that love people. So even if I don't get everything that's happening, I can return here because I guess it'll be safe. 
in that place is when um, I started to transition. Um, no, I got a check from Wendy's. And I was like, okay, I gotta go get some girl clothes, which was really scary because, you know, skinny jeans, they make your thighs hurt when you wear them too long. <laughs> I didn't want to. It was, it was a vulnerable thing to, to go into this place and buy these clothes that didn't feel like me. But I say that because I didn't go and buy feminine clothes to be like anybody. I didn't do it to get approval. I think it was the Holy Spirit showing me that this is a wisdom principle, that God had made me a woman and that in my womanness, he wanted glory. He wanted gl glory out of my femininity. He wanted glory out of the way that he had made me and that there are ways in which particular clothes hides what, those what that glory is to communicate. And so I felt like it would be dishonoring potentially to God to confuse people about who he had made me to be. I know it sounds deep. That's what I figured out as I kept following. But really it was, I think this would be a wise thing to do, but also a wise thing to do to protect myself because I'm continuing to dress in a way that would attract the kinds of people that I'm not strong enough to flee yet. And so I knew maybe I should dress like a girl so girls will leave me alone. So that's what I did. I went to Forever 21 and I bought some skinny jeans. Uh, I, I bought a pair that were purple. I don't really know what was happening maybe because it was, that's a little loud, you know. Uh, but it was 2008, we did weird things back then. Um, the church, the clothes, and then discipleship. I'm connected to a woman in L.A. named Centoria, and Centoria began to walk with me. Um, and one of the conversations that I had with Centoria that messed me up, which was really she was confirming what God had said, was Jackie. She was like, homosexuality was, isn't your only problem, because in my fighting, it's me reading all these like the body isn't meant for sexual immorality. The body is meant for the Lord. Like me trying to f have all these spiritual disciplines only as it relates to my sexuality and not my whole life. And she told me, she said, Jackie, like you got more problems than that. She was like, you arrogant. You, <laughs> you don't submit to authority. You're not teachable. Like you, cause I was going to a church that exalted gifts and not character. And so as soon as I got saved, they see, oh, she has a speaking gift. Let's put her in the pulpit, even though she's a hot, a hot mess still. And so meeting Santoria, I met someone who didn't care about the ways that God had gifted me, but cared about what God wanted out of me, which was my life. And so she showed me how to read the scriptures, how to pray, how to, how to just be saved, how to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. But it also wasn't just what she taught me. It was what she showed me. I was able to see what it looked like to be a woman who loved God. And in seeing what it looked like to be a woman who loved God, it also wasn't just her victories, but how she fell and overcame, you know? Me seeing her have these tough, difficult times, which taught me how to bounce back when the enemy got the best of me too. Oh, it's all right. Don't even feel shame, girl. That's what babies do. That's what they do. Um, in that time, I went to, I started doing poetry and I met this, guy named Preston. And we became friends. And initially when we became friends, I had been a Christian, I don't know, maybe six months. And so I was still very much, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want men at all. And I felt like maybe God had called me to celibacy. Maybe that was the route that God would have me go. And it felt like that would actually be an easier route. 
Um, and so when we met, we were just friends. We were just cool. Preston had did a poem on his testimony about how he could sleep or did sleep with everything that could breathe. And I did a testimony about how I used to be gay. So it was established from jump that we both ratchet, you know? <laughs> Let me make that clear. We were both sinful. <laughs> but a friendship began to, to happen. And in my friendship with Preston, everything that I had thought men were, he wasn't. He was consistent. He was compassionate. He was kind. He was from the hood, so he was a little rough, but he was everything that I didn't think men were capable of being, which started to soften my heart to the reality of maybe, maybe this is a possibility that I could be with a man. And so I started to have this attraction for him. But honestly, truth be told, I thought it was the devil. I said, I, I was like, I don't know if he tried to distract me from my purpose, you know, <laughs> you know. Oh, I didn't know if I was bored. When you were in Christ, and especially when you're new to Christ, before Christ, you have you always got like four, maybe one or two people that you can text to just do things with. And so I'm like, maybe I'm just bored and lonely and my flesh is like, ah, you should just like him so y'all can text all the time. And so I told my discipler, I was like, I feel like I like Preston, but I don't know what to do with it. Her being always vague was like, pray about it. <laughs> She never gave me like answers. It's just figure it out in, in Jesus' name. <laughs> and so I prayed and I, I, I prayed for a year. And in that span of time, Preston was in Chicago. I was in LA. In that span of time, the affections would not uh, decrease. They just continued to grow and grow. And so it got to a point where I just finally said, I said, God, I don't know what it is, what your will is for me and Preston. But if it's your will for us to be uh, together, then you have to lead him to pursue me because I just feel like that makes more sense. Um, but if it's your will for us to be friends, this is my wording, give me the self-control to treat him like a brother and not like a crush. Two weeks later, Preston being the spiritual man that he is, he calls me and he said, hey, Jackie, I got to talk to you about something. And I'm like, what's up? And, <laughs> and he was like, I feel like God is laying it on my heart to pursue you. But the thing is, I don't even know if you like me. Do you like me? <laughs> ain't that what you said? See, I, I'm not even, I ain't even lying on you. I'm saved. Um, <laughs> after that, we began a relationship that was hard immediately. I say that because people hear these stories and it gives them like this glee as if my relationships and my growing affections for Preston were actually the ultimate glory that God could get. As if it wasn't the moment that I believed that was just as glorifying to God. Um, but it is a kind of glory. Marriage is that. It just isn't the highest. The highest is Jesus, right? Um, but it got difficult because my relationship with him brought out all of the trauma inside of me that singleness did not deal with. And so I was afraid, I was scared, and it was awkward. He was the first real heterosexual relationship I ever had. So it was a, a weird thing to hug different. You know, girls put their arms up and the man grab your waist. I had to adjust to that. Um, men's hands, they feel a little like this desk here a little bit. <laughs> Am I wrong? They don't feel like Bath and Body Works. Um, 
And so <laughs> I had to adjust to touching and feeling a man in a way that was different than what I was used to. It felt vulnerable to be held instead of to hold. It felt strange to hug somebody and feel facial hair when I wasn't used to that. So there was this weirdness and this awkwardness that God was trying to help me to discover that there is beauty in distinction. That even if he is biologically different from you, it doesn't mean that he's not good for you. But also, even in his biological differences, trust me enough to give you the desire to love him. And so as I started to love and fall in love with who Preston was as a person, I began to love all that Preston was, which is a man. Does that make sense? God did not give me a general attraction and affection for all men. God gave me an attraction and affection for the man he called me to be with and to glorify his gospel through. Um, what else? <laughs> I think I just want to speak to how much time I got, you know? 20, wow. Okay, we can do a Q&A. Um, I think I, I just want to speak to... Uh, so many angles I could take. I guess I just want to speak to how sufficient the gospel is in this conversation. Because... Um, people are in this world who might be identifying as gay, which I wish Christopher Yuan, shout out to you. He just wrote a book called Holy Sexuality. Y'all should get that. Christopher is smarter than me. Um, he went to seminary and stuff. So um, I think this identifying thing is something that I would like us to deal with, not now, but in general, because I think what orientation or the concept of orientation, I really believe what it's done is that it's harmed our understanding of identity. Um, orientation being the uh, persistent pattern of desire for whatever sex you like. So if for the same sex, then gay, if for the opposite sex, then heterosexual, these terms didn't even exist prior to 1868. And I think the interesting thing, even in Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 um, and 10, when he, when he mentions homosexuality, the term in the Greek is men in bed with men. He's not even appealing to orientation, but to gender for the condemnation that he's teaching there. And so I think what it has done is it's made people identify themselves by their affections. And that's dangerous because what it does is when you start to identify yourself by your passions, your passions have more power than they should. Because you conclude, if this is who I am, then this is what I can't help but be. But really the reality of who we are is that Genesis 1 says that we're image bearers. And Genesis 3 says that we're sinners. And because of that, Romans 1 says what we do is sin. But when we come to Jesus, who we are now is new creatures. Who we are now is beloved. Who we are now is saints. And so I think maybe... If we began to see people in terms of how God defines them instead of how their passions define them, maybe our love would be different. Imagine if you began to love people not according to who they like, how holistic your gospel would become. Because now the conversation wouldn't all just land on their sexuality. Now you wouldn't have this sense of urgency when a family member comes out of the closet as if they weren't in the flesh 15 years before. That, that there's this kind of hierarchy that we've given to this particular sin that is dangerous because it's affected how we love. But it's also affected how we fight. 
Because again, we have a real devil who would prefer for us to identify ourselves by our temptations. And so if he can make me believe that because I still feel that way, I am that way, how will my endurance be? How will my faith be impacted by that? And so I just kind of want to speak into the fact that the gospel proclaims that God has reconciled and can reconcile sinners back to himself, not just gay people to himself, but people with names and desires and gifts and passions. These people that we refer to are just like us. They sin differently, but the root is all the same. And God loves us all the same. So I think that's all I got. I think that's all I have. So we got questions? Yes, sir. When you say kids, what do you mean? Okay. Um, I guess I'll speak from how I am beginning to parent and how I think it would be helpful, even though I, it feels arrogant to like give parenting advice when you, <laughs> your kids are four. But... <laughs> But the principle I'm trying to take on is I think children now really need to begin to be trained to not believe that because they feel something, they have to do something. I, I, and I think they have to be trained with that early because in high school, middle school, you have all of these kids exploring their sexuality now because they have these, they have these feelings and these affections that are legitimate, that are valid, that they are feeling, but they think, they start to question who they are just because they felt a temptation of the flesh or a desire of the flesh, as Ephesians says. And so I think starting to, to train children that, no, this is actually what Christianity is, is dying and self-denial. And that God has called us all, child or adult, to this same act. And the, I think there's some beauty in the fact that pointing to Jesus as the ultimate example of self-denial means that, one, he isn't calling us to do something that he hasn't done himself but also that he's calling us to do something that he will empower us to do for himself. And so I think teaching self-denial early and practicing that and explaining that and drawing that out, that just, just because a passion exists doesn't mean you have to do it. Doesn't mean that's who you are. This is a part of your human nature as a sinner is that there will be things that come out of you that you didn't choose, that you don't know what to do with. But guess what? We do have a God who gives us a spirit if we would choose to repent and believe in him who will empower us to not necessarily be straight because that's not the fruit of the spirit, but to have self-control, right? So that's one way. I th also, I don't know the title. It's in the bookstore. I know there's a book coming out about feelings I, I'm terrible. Just tweet D TGC for kids about how to handle particular feelings that they might be having. It didn't sound like that title, but that might work. <laughs> I know it's literally feelings. I don't know who's second. Go ahead. How do churches create safe spaces for do's and don'ts? <sighs> safe spacing is a, is a triggering word. Um, and it's only triggering because the, that those are, that's the kind of language that universities are using um, to not allow people to come in and say anything that's offensive. And so on one end, should we be considerate of the ways that we should love our neighbors well? Yes. On the other end, there is the reality that the call to repentance does hurt. That when Jesus called uh, the great young ruler, when he told him, hey, go sell everything you got. 
and follow me, it said that he walked away sad. There was grief at the call to obey. And so there's a real reality in which we cannot fully protect people from the humbling and the hurt that self-denial will bring. But there is a way in which we can avoid unnecessary offense that didn't have to be there. And so I think one of the ways that we can do that is I think the body just has to be the body. If you look at all the like commands in the New Testament for how we're to love people, if we just did that, we'd be good. It wouldn't be no church hurt. It wouldn't be no trauma. It wouldn't be no PTSD in our churches. It would just be all good. And so I say all that to say, I think one valuable way is to stop seeing gay people in your church as an other, um, as, a, as if their sin is more dominating than the heterosexual man that can't seem to stop dating 15 women a year. You know, like... Everybody needs the same gospel and the same grace and the same. So I think if I think when we begin to see our gay friends and neighbors or same sex attracted uh, Christians that are in our churches as people, as image bearers, it changes how we think. It changes how we pray. It changes how we interact. I think also I kind of said this, but in a different way is not centering again the entire conversation on their sexual struggles. How are you doing with your steward stewarding your money, bro? You know? How are you doing with loving your neighbor? How are you doing with, like, do you know how to read the Bible? Where it's just like we are training and discipling whole humans and not partial humans. So, yeah, I don't know what the hell. Yes. Ooh. Um, did you hear her question? Okay. So me and Preston, our backgrounds are, again, we both come out of sexual perversion to be to be honest him being a man who was promiscuous and people define that as manliness and um good me coming out of pornography addiction and uh lesbianism and so when you bring those two components in a marriage satan will pounce all over that um, but i think god has been get good to us primarily by way of his body me and Preston would not have been able to learn how to love each other well if we did not have couples around us teaching us to do so. I think our pastor and his wife and other couples in our worlds, they, they, just, they just help. It's just some about seeing and watching and listening to people who ain't been married more than 10 minutes, you know? Um, and so I think that's one of the dynamics that got us through, but also counseling. Me and him both got our separate counseling where we could work through the particular issues that we were having that were affecting our fruitfulness or affecting our communication or affecting our sex life. And so that was it. But I think what, is, what has been really helpful is that me and Preston like each other. We love each other, but we like each other. Like we travel and we self-employed, so we with each other every day. So if I don't like you and you self-employed, it's going to be a rough time. <laughs> <laughs> But the fact that I'm with somebody, and I think he would agree, you like me. I'm likable. You crazy if you don't like me. <laughs> the fact that God made us friends first. I think we were friends for three years. I think the fact that he did that is what has sustained us in light of all of the other ways that he has. But maybe we'll talk about it in detail one day. Yes. Oh, that's so hard. Um... So as, as someone who's been sexually abused, how, how does that kind of like affect me being a mother and protecting my children? 
I think it's made me hyper vigilant. But as I should be, I think. I think that's okay. And it's made it has made me much more skeptical of people because most sexually abused people are abused by people they know. And so to me, that's the assumption that everybody that you know is safe. And so I think what I have tried to do is one, I pray a lot for my children. Um, I pray that God would give me insight. I wasn't raised by a Christian mother, but a lot of my friends that had Christian mothers, they somehow knew all their business. And <laughs> like they would pray and be like, I think this is about like that thing. Or they were just, God would just kind of give them, here I go sounding charismatic, but God would give them insight into people that would somehow turn out beneficial for them. So I've trusted God to be like, God, protect my children and give me discernment for people that just aren't trustworthy. And also speaking that into the people that are trustworthy in my life. So mama, don't be having anybody around my child, you know, or don't expose her to these particular things, but also equipping my children. So my daughter's four, so there's only so much I can say. And so now it's kind of been on some, if anybody tells you to do this, don't. If anybody makes you feel uncomfortable, come tell me or tell a teacher or like trying to like, in a way, train her to learn how to pay attention to how she feels. Because I just don't underestimate how aware children are. And one of the stories that encouraged me, I was talking to a mother and she said when her son was like 10 or 11, she told him if you ever, she was praying that her God would give her children discernment. But she also said, she told him like, if you are ever anywhere and you just don't feel comfortable, you don't have to tell me why, just call me and tell me to pick you up. I won't ask no questions and I will. One day the son was over a, a church, one of the parents from church's house or whatever. And the son called and was like, God, mom, I don't know what's wrong. I just don't feel comfortable. I don't know what it is. And so she said, I'm on my way. Long story short, six weeks later, the father of the house she was over was actually molesting little boys. And so somehow in the providence and kindness of God, he gave this little 10-year-old some type of awareness that he couldn't put words to, but allow his, his mother to protect her in that way. So I, I trust that God would help us do that. And so, yeah, and you just can't trust people. They're just not, <laughs> you just can't. Children are so vulnerable. Um, yes, that's loaded. That's like a pastoral question. Um, <sighs> this is a philosophical assumption. But part of me thinks that society has, has just made men out to be these monsters that can't control themselves. And so it's just easy to have this expectation of them that, oh, porn, of course, they're lustful, they don't know what to do. And I think that's just not dignifying. And I, and I, and I think it's not healthy because maybe that creates a a sense of, well, I'm a man, so because that's what's been communicated, as if men are not, like the, like the son of man was a man. And so he had perfect self-control. He was God, but he was also very much a man. And so it's, it, their testosterone does not mean that they can't have self-control. Um, but I think also, I think the taboo with women is that women, they're hiders. Um, and culturally, there are certain particular cultures that are more prone to hiding. In the South, for example, you have people that are, they in small group, ain't never talking about their heart. You know, the most they might talk about, I just got irritated when I was in the grocery store line. 
Like this lady would not move her cart. Oh my God. <laughs> but, but let you talk about their idols. Don't get in my business. It ain't for you to know, you know? And so I think how we kill the taboo is that we, we create real intimacy in our churches and, and create communities where people really can confess their sins one to another without being shamed for it. having true, you know, warnings and challenges, but at the same time, creating a world where honesty is life. That, that's what we, we do. And so, yeah, I don't know. Get you some friends that you could tell the truth to. Yes. I think that's the Christianness in us where we feel that to love is to teach all the time. Um, and so perhaps the best way to love is to listen and to be present. Um, I think even when we have this race conversation that to, to be a, I'm, I'm a connected, but to be a male who identifies as heterosexual, there is a kind of distance from the situation that makes it impossible for you to fully speak into. You can speak into it in the general sense. God is good. God is great. He'll help us. He'll help us endure. Th those kinds of things. But, the, but in the same sense of someone who is white listening or having a friend who is dealing with oppression and all these kinds of things, there's a general way in which you can speak into it. But there's, it, I think sometimes the best way is to hear, listen, learn or even suggest how can I be an assistance to you as a friend? How can I help you to fight? How can I pray for you where it isn't let me teach, but it's let me learn from you and out of learning from you how to best serve you, I can actually serve you. Um, and so I think that's easier. Yeah, I, I feel like the doors are open. So we are in somebody looking at they watch two minutes. Praise God. One more question. What is the Holy Ghost going to send me to? Who Who is it? No, y'all don't look. Who, who, oh, he's shaking his hand. That's the Holy Ghost hand right there. <laughs> that was Acts 2 all day right here. <laughs> I've never encouraged marriage. I encourage righteousness because I think that's what the scripture encourages. Uh, and so if, if there is someone in their world that they're beginning to feel an attraction for and an affection for the, uh, from the opposite sex, it's pray and see if like, if singleness is the best avenue for you to best glorify God, go that route, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. If marriage is the best way for you to glorify God, go that route. So it isn't choose marriage, choose singleness. How best can you as a human being serve the God that you were created to serve? And I think that's really the best encouragement we can get. So thank you for coming. Thank you. thank you for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org.